This is The Rock Island in Arkansas, a look at the history of the railroad, its operations in the state, and in this episode, an effort to preserve a century-old depot in Perry, Arkansas. For the Rock Island line, it's a mighty good road. For the Rock Island line, it's a road to ride. For the Rock Island line, it's a mighty good road. If you want to ride, you got to ride it like you're fine to get your ticket and sitting on the Rock Island line. Coming up, it was a long shot idea with the Rock Island Depot slated to be torn down. I began working with the Perry County Historical and Genealogical Society and Preserve Arkansas in 2017 to see if we could raise money to move it. It was sort of the uh, hub of the community. Uh, mail service came in here twice a day. This is a piece of history. Didn't stop the depot even when the passenger service stopped in 67. The guy was saying, stop that train, stop that train, that's all he could say. And Dad jumped up, didn't even put his clothes on, and ran out with his lantern. I may be right and I may be wrong, so you want to miss me when I'm gone. Thanks to the generous donations of a lot of people and a grant from the state, the depot is in a new location, an adjacent lot still alongside the tracks to maintain its historical integrity. We've built a new foundation, replaced the roof, and as I produce this program, an effort is underway to get the Perry Depot listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Eventually, we hope to see work begin to carefully restore the inside of the building. That's just ahead. For nearly 80 years, the Rock Island was one of the major railroads in Arkansas, transporting passengers and freight. It had a huge footprint, at one point operating about 700 miles of track in the state that had originally been parts of 32 different railroads. The Rock Island's depots and stations were the center of activity in many towns and cities, especially when passenger trains were still running. This is the Rock Island in Arkansas, an accompaniment to the book of the same name released by Arcadia Publishing. Here's Michael Hiblin. This is what it sounded like on September 30th, 2018. After a year and a half of brainstorming, negotiations, and fundraising, a house moving company was preparing to move the one-story Perry Depot so it wouldn't be demolished. Workers had spent the previous two days using checks to lift up the ragged-looking wooden structure, which we believe was built in 1918. For much of its existence, the passenger and freight depot was a busy place, situated alongside the Rock Island Sunbelt Route, which ran between Memphis, Tennessee, and Tucumcari, New Mexico. It's got a classic design with a projected telegrapher's booth, segregated waiting rooms, and in the freight room, lots of historical graffiti left in the ceiling and walls by former employees. Buford Suffrage is president of the Perry County Historical and Genealogical Society and has been orchestrating the project. We were watching as the house movers positioned steel beams underneath the depot Wheels were attached, and it was pulled from the spot where it had been for a century. Well, it's almost unbelievable all, uh, all that we've been through at this point to get to this point, but uh, I believe it's actually going to happen. However, I'm not going to believe it until I see the building down there in the parking lot. The plan we eventually settled on was to move the depot from property today owned by the short line Little Rock and Western Railway and put it in a temporary location until we could build a foundation for it on an adjacent lot owned by the city of Perry. It's still alongside the tracks, where during the glory days of passenger rail service, the Rock Island ran its Choctaw rocket. But the last regular passenger train here was in 1967. Thankfully, the depot was never abandoned, and continued being used to coordinate freight. I'll explain more about that and the significance of the depot 
in just a bit. After the Rock Island was shut down in 1980, the Little Rock and Western Railway was created to operate an 87-mile stretch of track between Little Rock and Danville, Arkansas. It was initially owned by a local paper mill that had to have continued rail service to operate. It hired former Rock Island employees who were familiar with the area. A locomotive servicing shop was eventually built directly behind the depot, but by 2017, the railroad, now operated by a corporation operating short lines around the world, said it was going to tear down the depot to expand the locomotive servicing area. Also, the dilapidated old building no longer served an active purpose. Thankfully, knowing the importance the depot had in the community, the railroad notified the local historical society about its plans and provided time to determine if it was feasible to move the depot. We had been assured by several entities that the depot was likely still in relatively good condition thanks to it being built with extremely strong virgin pine timber. But there was a lot we didn't know until the house movers used jacks to lift it off the ground. The company was Combs Home Builders and House Movers, run by Shane Cantrell, who gave suffrage an assessment on the building's condition. Well, he, uh, he told me yesterday that a number of the floor joists are rotten, and he pointed out one that was totally gone, and that was sort of in uh, about three-quarters of the way down the building where the floor was sagging. And uh, he said that uh, some of the others in that area are in bad shape. The ones that we can actually see here don't look too bad uh, on the outside here. I don't know how they look uh, on the interior. And he said that uh, obviously water has stood under here for years. And of course we can't say is it stood under there for a hundred years or not, but it may have just been since uh, that metal building was constructed behind it and all that gravel put in there. Well, the fact that it's uh, standing up, it didn't disintegrate and turn to dust. <laughs> well, that's true, and it's, uh, at least we know it's level now since it's sitting on those steel beams. He did tell me that uh, when they put the beam under there, there was about a 12-inch sag on it. And, of course, once that metal beams under it, that flattens the building out and straightens it out. Uh, he also showed me where the building is actually moved on on its uh, foundation, so to speak. <clears throat> he thinks somebody may have run into it, but I'm guessing that uh, there's been some tornadoes through here in the last hundred years. I think there was a bad one here, maybe in the 20s or, or uh, early 30s, and I'm guessing that's what moved it. The building, actually, he said everything's just sitting on the cross ties and sitting on the bridge timbers, wasn't even fastened to them. <laughs> and the building itself, apparently, is just sitting on the floor joist and the flooring. The depot had long been a favorite for rail fans to photograph. In the last five years of the Rock Island, after filing for bankruptcy in 1975 and attempting a reorganization, the railroad adopted a new logo using the colors blue and white while simply calling itself The Rock. It was part of an effort to present a new image for the railroad, which by that point had been deteriorating for years, having not earned a profit since 1965. The depot was repainted in the new color scheme inside and outside. The old waiting rooms were painted blue in the lower half of the walls and white in the upper half. Remaining on both sides of the depot more than three decades after the end of the Rock Island were the railroad's blue and white depot signs with a large R and the city name Perry. Also still there until we moved the depot was the semaphore signal, which, as I record this, is currently in storage and will eventually be placed next to the depot 
in its new location. Suffrage was 77 years old at the time as we watched the house movers on that day and told me his recollections of the depot. Well, um, probably, I guess my earliest memory would be seeing soldiers here during World War II. We'd be on our way to Marlton, crossing the tracks down here on Highway 9, and I remember, I remember looking down here. Of course, I would have been about four at the time. It was fascinating seeing. I can remember, remember some soldiers standing around here. And then uh, I had an aunt and uncle after the war, after he got back from World War II, they lived in Little Rock and they would come up and spend the weekend with us. And they would ride the train up here to Perry and we'd come over and pick them up. And then uh, we would, uh, on Sunday, we'd take them back and they would, they would go back to Little Rock on the train. And I just remember being in here a time or two, I don't know why, I can just remember being inside the building. When it was still in use as a passenger yeah, depot? Yes, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, this would have been in the early 50s, late 40s, early 50s. Uh, when Daddy needed something from Little Rock, he had it sent up on the bus. But earlier, or if it was something real heavy, he had a sawmill, so occasionally he'd have something heavy sent up and they would ship it up here on the train we would come over here and pick it up. And we occasionally, I remember at least one occasion where we just came and uh, there used to be a lot of activity here. I, of course, I lived over at Perryville, which is just over the mountain there, and you could hear the freight engines, the steam engines, I mean, over here switching cars and moving. So there was quite a bit of activity here. And occasionally, I remember us stopping here and watching, watching the activity. Talk about the significance this has to Perry. I mean, not even Perry County it was important, but Perry it pretty much is the railroad and vice versa. Well, of course, the city of Perry is here because of the railroad. And uh, the depot itself, it was sort of the uh, hub of the community. Uh, mail service came in here twice a day. The mail was delivered for the Perry Post Office as well as the Perryville Post Office. Mr. Poteet was the postmaster at Perryville and he came over here twice a day and picked up the mail and brought mail, of course, to uh, send it off. And there used to be a cafe over here across the street and it was kind of a loafing place for the old men in the uh, town and of course they would sit, watch the activities here, watch the trains and the telegraph office was here. If you wanted to send a telegram, this is where you came to do it. In fact, Daddy sent me a telegram from here in uh, 19, would have been 1965, I guess it was. Uh, I was working in Carlsbad, New Mexico, at Carlsbad Caverns, and communication was bad, and he came over here and sent me a telegram at, uh, I was trying to get in dental school at the time, and I was to call Dr. Allstat in Little Rock, who was helping me, and so he sent me a telegram. So that was that was important for me. <laughs> Got me in dental school. <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, it was just a it was a hub for Perryville as well as well as Perry. And tell me about the uh, the depot agent you remember uh, from your earliest uh, recollections. Well, Mr. Dallas, Oscar Dallas, was the depot agent here uh, when I was growing up. And uh, I can't say as I really knew him. I just knew who he was and saw him, knew he was the depot agent. I don't know how many years he was here, but uh, he was, I can remember probably starting in about 1943 or 44, and I think he was here then. and. I graduated from high school in 58 and left, and I think he was still the depot agent at that point. And at that time, the depot agent was among the uh, top officials in town. Well, he was, and it was a prestigious job, uh, probably a prestigious job uh, on the railroad itself, but certainly he was looked up to in, in town here. 
because he was, he was the connection to the outside world for a lot of people. Following Oscar Dallas, Joe Majors became the Perry Depot agent, holding that position for decades until the Rock Island was shut down. I spoke with his son, Danny Majors, who was brought to the depot regularly beginning when he was a young boy. Seems like a walk. <laughs> we came to the depot and watched the trains go by. Of course, it was slow then. Business was slow, and he could, he could go in. And he could we could just play in the depot while it while he did his telegraph at work. We met at the depot on January fourth, twenty twenty. At that time, the depot was being stored on a city access road, sitting on steel beams. As work to prepare the building's new foundation was underway, majors spoke about what his dad did as depot agent. At the beginning, you know, it was receiving and uh, delivering telegraphs around the area. And that was the, one of the big things, they were writing train orders. When they would come here, they had written train orders. So he had to hand the train orders up to the trains. He would have to receive them and then repeat them back to them. And they uh, used a shorthand language, what they used. And they would repeat the train order back. And it had to be correct when it was repeated back to the dispatcher. And so he would get the train orders, and if it was 2 o'clock in the morning, they needed a train order. He came down here at 2 o'clock in the morning and handed the train orders up. We did a lot of times. And uh, he would put a torpedo off on the outside of the town that was a explosive device, and it would let them know that something was going on, that they were at work, that, that somebody was at the depot. Either they were going to stop or they had to have an order, had to slow down for orders. And so he would get up in the middle of the night, and he'd get paid for like two hours. Every time he came down for a uh, mid middle of the night call, whatever time it was, and the, and the rule was that if you took these jobs on, you you could not say no if you answered the phone. You were to, you, you you were under a, a agreement that you would come to work if you were not sick or something. Anyway, and one time they had the two trains that almost had a head-on collision in this area, and that's what they called him up, and was the guy was saying, stop that train, stop that train, that's all he could say. And Dad, we lived not far from the tracks here, just back, you could see the house from the depot, and he jumped up, didn't even put his clothes on, and ran out with his lantern, he kept the lantern beside the bed because he had to get up all the time, and went out and flagged the train down, and the train saw his lantern and signaled, tooted that, uh, that they saw him, and then they come back and in town with a passenger train and stopped and they wanted to know what was going on when he got over here finally with his clothes on and all that stuff. And, and uh, then they figured out they were going to run two passenger trains head on west, west of town here. It was fixing, it would have been in just a matter of, within less than an hour it would have happened. So they got the train stopped. It was just a, an overlap of the orders that were given in Little Rock. But uh, his main thing was doing train orders receiving freight. They had a freight room here on the back of the depot and uh, and also something that was here at one time was they loaded pulpwood right up in that area right beside the depot. They loaded pulpwood there before this paper mill was ever built and it went to, uh, south to paper mills up further south of here. And so there was a pulpwood yard here and there was also another business. They loaded cross ties right down here all the way up until the railroad closed there was a cross tie yard sitting right down here by the highway, and they loaded green cross ties to be shipped off to be treated. And the other thing I remember that there being, there was these oil companies here. We had two oil companies in town and, th and two propane companies, and they were the business too. The propane came in here to these tanks right here, which took off right there, and the uh, uh, loaded, uh, I guess they brought gasoline in by tankers at one time that way because they were built right up against the railroad. There used to be one sitting right on the other side of the tracks here. So, and there was business here even as it began to whittle away, the paper mill came in and actually multiplied it by 10 times or a whole, a whole lot more than I could ever imagine. And also he handled the depot at, uh, he did freight out of Houston and Bigelow. So he handled those rice cars that were shipped out out of Houston that went to Stuttgart. And so that was the other business. They had several carloads of rice that were harvested over on the Fush River and brought to the railroad, and he wrote the bill ladings out for all that. And the other thing that took place here was when they built the Arkansas River system, all that 
was brought to this depot, a bunch of it was. They had a steel yard here. When they made it navigable? Yeah, when they made it navigable and built the bridges and stuff over the, over the river and built all the new bridges. They had a steel yard set up here in town. There's one right over there, and there was one down here. That, and they had uh, concrete unloading facilities that was uh, dry cement came into here. And it was hopper car after hopper car of, of cement was brought in here in the 60s. And they unloaded it here at this town, of all places. And, the, uh, and Winrock Farms, when they built Winrock Farms in 1952, they brought everything in here by the boxcar load, all the fencing, and unloaded it. Later on, even a freight truck was hauling the freight when the passenger trains quit. They would bring freight and put it in the depot freight room and people would come get all their packages here. And a lot of the depots were closed after passenger service ended, but it was the freight, the local freight? Well, the, the paper going? mill came along in 1964, right at the time everything else quit. So they, from 1964 on, it was one of the busiest depots in Arkansas because of all the freight that came into the paper mill. There was a phone box down by the paper mill switch, and he would go down there and put switch orders in that phone box down there. That's one thing. He had to go every day to the paper mill and write down every car that was in the paper mill. If there was 50 cars, 100 cars, he had to write them down. And then he had to come back in and put them in that computer send them off that they were here. So it's like a lot of work. Yeah, and then he had to report all the money. He had to call Chicago every day and report his daily income to the treasurer's office. He had a whole drawer full of bills one time, and they come down here and won't know why he didn't have those bills turned in. And he said, well, there's not enough time in the day or year to get this, these, all these bills because we got to answer this phone and answer this phone, write these orders, do all this stuff. And so then they sent him some help. That's really the only way he got help was he finally let the bills pile up. And he said, well, folks, you, you got to have these train orders wrote, and I can't be doing bills and train orders at the same time. He had several thousand dollars in that drawer he stacked up that couldn't send the customer their bill, but he, they would, wouldn't give him enough, wasn't enough hours in a day to do all of it. You didn't do overtime unless you were told to do it, so. They didn't want to pay no overtime, but they wanted it to magically happen somehow. Was there a safe in the depot? Not that I ever saw. Okay. They had a petty cash box, but it wasn't a safe. It was just, uh, I think there was just a drawer there that had the money in it, and there wasn't a whole lot in it. But I remember when he was, when I was a kid, I remember a few people bought pasture tickets, and he had a little bit of money in that, that and he had a typewriter, of course, an old manual typewriter that he wore out. And you said that he would write letters for people who couldn't read and write? Yeah, he did that most of the time on his own time. If he, because he had a typewriter at home, he'd write them up at the house a lot of times. Right. They'd come to the house and he'd type them up their letters from railroad employees. Most of them was. It was on the track gangs. And they couldn't read and write, so he, he would come in. He'd fill out their forms for when they got hurt and stuff. There wasn't nobody to do that, so... And they they did they couldn't make heads or tails of it, so he would fill those out. You know, it's a good thing about having an education that that, that he had, he had a good education. His dad was a school teacher, taught him real good how to read and write, and that's how come he got his job. That's how he got on with the railroad because he was one of the few people who could read and write real well. He hired on it up at Belleville, and they knew he could. That's his hometown. He knew that the railroad guy there knew he could read and write. The property the city decided recently to place the depot on had originally belonged to the Rock Island. As Danny Majors explained, it's where the railroad at one time had a water tank for steam engines. This well behind us, actually, this was created by the railroad. The original well was created by the railroad. That's how they filled up the steam engines. It's a spring-fed well. Tried pumping it dry, and nobody could ever pump it dry. It's an unbelievable spring. It's only 10 foot deep. They can pump it down, walk around in it, and it can't be pumped dry. There wasn't even a building there whenever I was a kid. There was a flat concrete slab with, the, uh, with the, I think, with just the uh, wells under it. Because it's not, I used to run that, and it's, I know I've been in there many days. He also talked about what it was like when passenger trains were still running. 
I guess the best I know what about the passenger trains was that they left out of Memphis like in late evening and they came through here during the middle of the night. They run from like midnight and they were headed to Tucumtari, New Mexico where they would meet up with the Southern Pacific and then they would meet, go all the way to LA. Yeah, the thought of this being you know, part of the way to yeah. from Memphis to LA, millions of people probably rolled. Oh yeah, right there's no telling how many tickets he sold that they would stop. They could flag the train down, catch the train at night and go on to LA, you know, and be in LA sooner, sooner or later, I think it's. I don't know how many hours it took for them to get there because they stopped it everywhere there was a need to stop. But the doodlebug run through here, you could mail a letter here at the local post office and they would put it on the doodlebug and it would be in Little Rock and delivered that day, not tomorrow or the next day. It would be there that before that afternoon delivered to somebody's in the, in the boxes in the main post office. But uh, anyway, the doodle bug caught the mail sacks. As it, if it didn't stop, it just caught the mail sack and it kept on moving. And it was the one car uh, passenger train. There was one time when the uh, yeah, mailbag thrown off broke open. Yeah, I, I think it was the mailbag they were picking up. There was a stand out on the other side depot that looked like a kind of like a hangman's noose thing out there. And they would hang the mailbag on it and they caught it with an arm and it, they busted the bag when they caught it. And then it just scattered the mail west of the depot forever. <laughs> and so Dad called. We got, we got all us kids and everybody in, that was around to help pick up the mail because it was everywhere before it blew away. <laughs> and the, a guy named Bill McGee would get the mail bags and he would deliver them to the post office here in the Perryville and, the, and to other spots around the, the area. He would meet the train, you know, get the bags. Well, when they stopped passenger service in 67, uh, your school uh, got to uh, ride it? Yes, we, we went to, we went to, uh, made a field trip and we went up to Lake Nimrod first and came back to Ola and caught the train at the Ola Depot and rode it back to here, the doodlebug. I was in grade school. That's what, you know, I was, I was not very old, but I remember. I yeah. never, Did I don't they know. actually say anything? This is the, you know, one of the last trains we want you to take this in or? Well, I, I don't remember a lot about it. I just remember being on that train. I just, I'll just i never forget that day we rode that train. Everybody in grade school did. We had a whole, we, I don't know how they got us all on the train. I imagine we had to stand for what, well, we didn't have, we didn't have three or four kids to every class. So and we only had six grades. So they would cut probably 20, 15 or 20 kids. But kind of when that stuff kind of went away, they didn't make such a big deal about it. I, I don't know, they didn't. Just, the mindset of the country, you know, the automobile and building interstates uh, was, and air travel. Yeah, just choked it all out. And did all. Another key childhood memory for Danny Majors was seeing the circus and fair trains that would roll through Perry. That's how they traveled the country at the time, just to the east in Little Rock. The Rock Island's main line curved around the Arkansas State Fairgrounds which would host the events. Uh, Barman Bailey would come through here every year, and and uh, Royal American Shows came through here every year to the Arkansas State Fair. So we always got, they always come in out of the west. We'd see them first before they went to Little Rock. Yeah, and I noticed the Rock Island tracks curved right by. Yeah, the yeah right by the State Fairground. And, and the people would be out waving at us, out of the cars, especially on both trains. There was always a, Somebody at the door standing watching every little come out through every town. They'd be waving, and we, we anyway, we all Dad'd always know when the circus train and the fair train was coming, the Royal American shows were coming. So he, we'd make sure we was here at the depot whenever the trains went by. That was pretty pretty neat thing That's to sweet. have. <laughs> if they had some special train coming through, he'd let us know, and we'd come down and watch. Danny Major shared with me a great black-and-white photo of his dad posing in front of the western side of the depot. It was likely taken in the 1950s with the city named Perry painted on the side and the Rock Island Herald directly underneath. Joe Majors was holding his pipe and attached to his belt was his pocket watch. I made a high-resolution scan of that photo which someday will hopefully be on display inside the depot 
when the restoration is complete. I've also got the photo on my website, hiblinradio.com. Danny also spoke about what the equipment was like. He probably had the first computer in this part of the world because <laughs> he had a teletype machine, uh, teletype machine put in, in in the 60s, around six, late 60s or 70, and it linked it to Chicago to a computer. had its own phone line. It, it was uh, Nobody ever seen one around here to then. They had their own phone systems uh, that were set up for all of the, the railroad that they could call and not be out on anybody else's phone to keep stuff from being problematic of people listening in or whatever. So he had two or three telephones. We had the intercom for the, uh, there was a phone system up and down the tracks. They had phone booths everywhere. And they could call in to him or Little Rock or anywhere off of those. He'd have them talking. Then he'd have that phone that went out to Chicago and everywhere. Then he'd have the regular phone. And so he had three telephones going all the time. And plus, then it went before that, there was a telegraph going before that. But when that private phone line got put in, they did away with the telegraph at that point. And he caught, he, he was very proficient in telegraph. And he, he, he loved to telegraph. But, uh, you know, it was, it was a noisy place whenever in the 60s, whenever, it, before then it was pretty quiet and dry, but in the 60s when that paper mill was put in, they, they started building all the stuff on the Arkansas River, it got real noisy. In fact, he didn't have time for us to come over at that point, hardly. It was too busy. But the job of depot agent could also be grim. During wars, depots were where newly enlisted soldiers departed. If they survived, the depots were often where families would be reunited. If there was bad news of someone dying in combat, first word would often arrive at depots. Because party lines were common for telephone service at that time, Major says his dad did not want to share the news that way. I don't think he was here during the Korean War, but he was here during the Vietnam War, and he would get the telegraphs when somebody passed away, and he would have to go and deliver. He would go into their house, go to their house and deliver the telegraph. He didn't feel like they ought to be come out to come find their way to the depot to get that telegraph, and and I, I think they sent the bodies back. I, I'm not sure, but I think they sent the bodies back Railroad Express if it was. I don't know exactly how they did all that, but they did get bodies in and out. They did it over at Forest City when he worked there. They had they handled lots of bodies. They would tell they would move them. Occasionally, Joe Majors would take time off, and the Rock Island would send someone else in to temporarily manage operations in Perry, like John Henderson, who spoke with me at the annual reunion of former Rock Island employees in Arkansas on September 25, 2018. He was excited to learn about the project to preserve the Perry Depot. Oh, man, that's fantastic. I, uh, I, I just cannot believe that there would be an organization that would be interested in saving these old depots, and that's one of them. Henderson explained how he came to sometimes work in Perry. I started with the Rock Island in Bridgeport, Texas, in 1957, uh, 1960, I was working in Oklahoma. I bid a job back in in Arkansas, which was over Brinkley, third shift at Brinkley, and worked for about three months and I got bumped. That means I had to go back to the extra board. So in the early 60s, in 1960, 61, I was on the Arkansas Telegraph extra board, working all over Arkansas and Louisiana. Uh, and I'll always remember them sending me to Perry to relieve the agent for vacation uh, because the depot agent in each town was considered among the leading citizen in the town. Well, when a new person showed up, he would come to the Kiwanis Club, the Lions Club, uh, the Masonic Lodge to see if he was a member of them, to uh, invite you to their meetings and all. And sure enough, you know, you they treated you like royalty, really. Because usually the depot agent 
outside a doctor and maybe a lawyer or two was the highest paid man in the county. So I enjoyed that part of it, but uh, but I enjoyed uh, working at Perry and uh, three or four different times relieved Joe for vacation. Uh, of course, I worked all over eastern Oklahoma, Arkansas, all of Louisiana, working as a extra telegraph operator uh, until 1963 when I started train dispatching there at Little Rock. So were you, would you work there in the uh, telegrapher bay? Yes. And that's when we run lots of trains, including two passenger trains a day each way, uh, you know, handing up train orders to each train, uh, and, of course, watching all trains go by because that was part of your duty. They better not catch you inside that depot when a train was going by. You better be outside watching See if there was anything dragging or uh, hot box or whatever. Well, it was interesting. I mean, Perry really was, you know, built around the railroad. It was an important station because of the timber industry around there. Of course, later on, you know, they uh, opened up a big paper mill down close to Perry, but that was in later years. But uh, there was. There, about the only thing was the timber industry, but it was it was an important station as far as the railroad went uh, because it was about halfway between Little Rock and Boonville, and that's where your decisions were made by your train dispatchers in Little Rock where to meet trains. The closer they got to Perry, then they could figure out where I want to meet one train with another. I noticed uh, I've been inside and through it, and in the uh, freight area, there are all these names written up on the walls. Oh, I, I remember them, yeah. Uh, I think section foremen, section people wrote their names on their baggage men. At one time, they had a full-time baggage man there at Perry because... They would, they, people would ride the train to Perry that lived in Perryville and even clear over to Marlton and, uh, and somebody would meet them and carry them, get their luggage and carry them back to wherever they were going. Why would people write their names uh, inside the freight area? For posterity, I imagine. Because yeah, there are a lot in there. I, I would imagine, uh, I was trying to remember I think my name's my name's probably in there somewhere. I think everybody wrote their name just so future years maybe people could say, well, I knew him. Well, now, you know, when we've been going through it, now as we restore it, you know, we want to preserve those names. And, yeah, exactly. You know, there's some dates that, like, in there's one that says 1910. So yeah. I assume the years were the seniority dates for employees. Probably a lot of them were. Uh-huh. Uh, but most of them probably was the year that they wrote their names on there uh, because that depot had, uh, had been there for many, many years. The reason for me asking John Henderson about the dates written alongside names in the freight room is that some predate when we think the depot was built. This stretch of track between Little Rock and the Oklahoma border was laid in 1898 and 1899 by the Choctaw, Oklahoma, and Gulf Railroad. It was created with the primary goal of linking coal resources in the area that became Oklahoma with the Mississippi River in Memphis. The company acquired the Memphis and Little Rock Railroad, which was the first railroad licensed to operate in Arkansas, being chartered in 1853. The Choctaw route also built an impressive bridge over the Arkansas River at Little Rock in 1899 and a two-story passenger station nearby, both of which are still around today and are part of the Clinton Presidential Center. The Chicago-based Rock Island was interested in expanding and bought a controlling interest in the Choctaw, Oklahoma, and Gulf in 1902 
completing the hostile takeover in 1904. From the time rails were first laid through Perry, the railroad always had a presence there, but we believe the original depot was a smaller building than what we're working with today. Arkansas Railroad historian Bill Pollard says a Rock Island profile for the area says this depot was built in 1918. Sanborn Insurance maps also suggest that time frame would be right. A 1914 map shows a smaller depot there with the map's key indicating it had a wood shingle roof. A 1924 map shows what looks more like the current depot, and the map's key indicates it had a tin roof. While working to replace the roof recently, we removed layers of modern shingles and found what we believe to be that original tin roof underneath. But back to John Henderson and his days working at the depot in the 1960s. There was two passenger trains a day. Uh, one of them was a bigger passenger service out of Memphis, and the other one was a small, what we call a bud car, uh, usually just an engine and a car in the same car. Uh, call it a bud car. Were there many passengers who would uh, wait for trains in Perry? Yeah, there was a few because they would come out of Marlton over there. And that's when the Missouri Pacific stopped passenger service up through Marlton. And they would come over there to go to Oklahoma City, go to Little Rock, Memphis, whatever. So there was, we sold quite a few tickets. And were they segregated waiting rooms there on each side? Not at Perry, not that I remember. Because I remember their, their ticket windows facing out into two different areas that looked like they could be uh, waiting areas. Now it could have been before I ever worked there. Now, I remember working other stations where it was segregated waiting rooms, and it could have been, probably was there. In fact, Jim Crow laws at the time mandated segregated facilities in the South. One waiting room on the east side of the building is much larger than the other, with several windows looking outside. The waiting room on the opposite side of the office is smaller and in later years was used by signalmen in this region. Shelves were built into one of the walls, apparently for their equipment. Another Rock Island employee who often worked out of Perry was Bill Anderson, who also spoke with me at the 2018 Employees' Reunion. He first talked about the train order signal that the house movers dug out of the ground so that we can eventually place it again outside the telegrapher's booth connected to the controls inside. I'm glad you got the semaphore board. Picked up orders there a lot of times. But he shared the story of an unfortunate accident that occurred there, killing a brakeman named Ben Johnson. The most tragic thing that I have ever that I ever knew of happened right here at Perry. Uh, on the local that's coming from Boonville to Little Rock, uh, we was, had to pick up here at Perry, and, and the, the house track went uh, down by the uh, propane place and, and across Highway 9 and, and over into behind the house. And they loaded pulpwood cars back there. And Bachman, swing brakeman, Ben Johnson was the Longfield man. They stopped by, they got off Ben went back there making couplings between the cars there and uh, got the, he flagged the crossing and, and backed him up, coupled into the cars behind the house. And then he went back there making air joints, letting off handbrakes. And when he got them all, it's nighttime now. And when he let them off, he gave the signal, Bachman said, to move ahead, to go back, go out. So as they would, there's a little curve there in that track. And as the rear end came around the curve, rear end of the cut that he was picking up, came around the curve, Bachman saw something moving in the grass alongside the car. He 
assumed that it was a piece of pulpwood that had got down lodged in front of a wheel and it was scooting along. So he flagged down, went back there to get the pulpwood out of it, and it was Ben. Ben had fallen somehow and be underneath the wheel, and that's what Bachman saw. His body was scooting along on that wheel. He was a young man. He, he hadn't been on a railroad many years. I, I don't know, four or five years maybe. And uh, he, he, had, he and his young wife lived there anyhow. But that was, uh, uh, when I think of Perry, I always think of that. Uh, and I worked that paper mill job there a long time, a lot. And worked back and forth out there and pulled that track. And every time I did, I thought about Ben. You know, yeah, sure. But uh, that was, I don't, I forgot now what year that happened in, but that was the most tragic thing that I know of that ever happened at period. That's why I remember Perry so well, other than working in there and working with Joe Majors. Joe Majors was, and my wife were old acquaintances from years back before I knew her. Another employee who recalled that accident was Mike Childers, who started with the Rock Island in 1967 and worked as a brakeman and conductor. There was a, a, a spur track in behind the depot that they, a lot of times they'd load cross ties in there or maybe a, a, they would have puff wood come in there and they would unload puff wood. There was a track, in, house track in behind here. And I remember, oh, it was about a year or two after I went to work there, we had a brakeman. There was two trains meeting there and uh, there was a, some puff wood sticking out and he was hanging on to the, to the uh, side of the car and the puff would hit him and knock him off and killed him, Johnson. But he got killed up there. And uh, it's a very dangerous job. When you're on the ground, you can't believe how many people have lost part of their hand, uh, got killed. There was, oh, I think right after, right after the Rock Island closed, there was several people that got maintained that would, would have jobs over there, and we lost we lost a couple of people. There was a, a brakeman and conductor or two conductors or something. Uh, but it's a really a dangerous job. You've got to be very careful. Talking with me at the 2018 Rock Island reunion, Childers said he enjoyed working in Perry. It was always a nice place. It was a small depot, but it was a real nice place. Uh, the agent there was Joe Majors uh, when I first went to work, and, and he was the agent there when I quit. Uh, he passed away, I don't know, it's been some 10 years, 12 years ago, I think. But uh, he was a real, real nice man. He always uh, treated everybody fairly. If you did the work and you did it the way he wanted to, uh, you always uh, were special to him and he always knew you by name. And uh, the railroad people were almost like a family with Rock Island. Uh, it wasn't near as big as the Mopac but everybody knew one another. We had a good group of people working together. I was one of the younger ones, uh, not the youngest, but I was, I was probably in a group of younger ones uh, in 67, and of course they went bankrupt in 1980. But it was always good to, you, you knew that when he gave you instructions to what you to do, as long as you did it the way he wanted to, it would be, everything would be okay. I'll have more from Mike Childers in just a bit. One especially intriguing aspect of the Perry Depot is that decades after the Rock Island shut down, relics of the railroad and how it operated remain. One key reason is likely that the Little Rock and Western was operated for its first several decades by former Rock Island employees who appreciated its heritage. As recently as 2012, I looked through the window of the telegrapher's booth and saw the vintage microphone for the dispatcher's telephone was still there on a telescoping arm along with a headset. They disappeared in the five years between then and the start of our project to save the depot in 2017, but looking at photos, maybe we can identify the equipment and find similar models through antique dealers.
or maybe anyone who took the items did so at a time when it looked like the depot was destined to be torn down and would be willing to return them. Still in the depot is a foot pedal the dispatcher would use to alternate between talking and listening. We also have a box that allowed the dispatcher to patch into different parts of the railroad's communication system. It looks kind of like what telephone operators would use long ago with patch cables and different holes they could be plugged into. Danny Majors, the son of former depot agent Joe Majors, explained how his dad used that to communicate with others. That's where he spoke to them on the uh, uh, lines that went up and down the track where the, the train crews could stop at a box and talk along. There were boxes all up and down the tracks. And, and also a dispatcher could talk on that box, okay. on that line. That was their own private lines that were run. And there was a speaker there somewhere that would come on and he, he would hear. I think he had headphones at first, but they, they put in a speaker. So and that's what you could always hear that speaker going. John Henderson spoke about how the patch cables could be used if one part of the system went down. That was where the, uh, there was probably eight or ten cables in there. And that was primarily how you checked if your lines went out. You check that to find out which direction from the depot the line was out. You would block off the east side of the town. If the west part of the, of the town was okay, you know the trouble on the lines was down east because you had battery power. Uh, you used to have the old wet cell batteries and they moved to the uh, dry cell batteries that you plug into the walls, but you could check and see where the breakage was in the lines, that's in case of a storm or whatever, because I know time or two I've worked all over where you would check uh, when the lines would go out and the relay office in Little Rock would call you on the phone and start checking to see where they know where to send the linemen approximately. It may not be right at the depot, but it would be between your depot and maybe another one. That's what, that's what those were designed for. That way it kept continuity going in the lines, because you had to leave all them plugged in, because if you unplugged one, part of the lines would go out. And of course, telegraph was very, very important at that time, because that was our means of communication from the train dispatcher to the uh, station as well as our telephone lines. And by 1960, we started having a, a lot of telephone conversations with the train dispatcher. Instead of sending you a train order to pass up to a train passing, uh, he would call you and give it to you over the phone, and then you hand it up to the train. So he'd know where to meet a train, how long to wait at a station for a certain station down the line for another train, uh, because we operated strictly on train orders. Talking with former Rock Island employees to record their first-hand experiences and get explanations about various aspects of railroading from that time has been greatly appreciated. It's also good to learn that they, too, see the value in this project. Here again is Mike Childers, the former brakeman and conductor, speaking with me as cleanup was underway after the 2018 Arkansas Employees Reunion. This is a piece of history, and it represented uh, this town from 1918 until 1980. didn't stop the depot, even when the pasture service stopped. I mean, the pasture service stopped in 67, but they still had uh, trains going up there back through March of 1980. And it was an integral part of the community, and it helped probably develop not only Perry, but also other depots that were filled in at Danville, Ola, and in Boonville, uh, and going on further than that, on, all the way out to Tucumcari, New Mexico. 
because our line went from Memphis through Little Rock to Boonville all the way out to Tukankuri. I'd sometimes explain to people that this was like the connection to the outside world, you know, with It was. It you... was. It was the the one connection that had the people of Perry County where they could come by carriage or horseback or whatever to the depot and catch a train to Little Rock or to Boonville or wherever they were gonna go. And it was it was the mode of transportation. And I'm sure it was an integral uh, congregating part because I'm sure people congregated there at the depot because it was a lively place and people were coming and going. You know, they were picking people up, relatives were coming and picking people up, kids were going to school and were coming back with using the train. Uh, it was part of history. And you know, you, you don't want to see something that 100 years old be destroyed but I'm, I'm thankful that the depot can be preserved within 150 feet of where it originally was. And to keep it near, you don't want to put it away from the tracks. The one integral part that I think of the whole equation is saving the depot and the fact that it's gonna be 150 feet from where it was 100 years. And, and on the same side of the track, just a little bit down to where uh, they had a spur track back there, uh, going to this piece of track right back there. But I'm glad that they're saving a piece of history because it could have easily, without the assistance of the Preservation Society, the Historical Society, and the people of Perry County, it could have easily been torn down. You can read more about the project and find out the latest on my website, hiblinradio.com. Coming up in future episodes of The Rock Island in Arkansas, a look at how the Perry Depot was used when the Little Rock and Western was created. I'll also detail how this project to save the Perry Depot has come together and what's next, featuring more from Buford Suffrage, and I'll also talk with Rachel Patton, the executive director of the group Preserve Arkansas. She has been guiding us in this project so that it's done in a way to maintain the depot's historical integrity and hopefully allow it to be eligible for being listed on the National Register of Historic Places. I'll also have more about passenger service on the Rock Island and what it took to preserve the Little Rock Passenger Station. Here's how you can help. We've been raising money since the summer of 2018 with all donations going to the nonprofit Perry County Historical Museum. Some donations have come via a campaign on the website GoFundMe. As I record this, 71 donors have given $7,220 to the project online. We've also received checks and have a donation jar on the front counter of the Perry City Hall. In April 2019, we were awarded a $10,000 grant from the Arkansas Economic Development Commission's Division of Rural Services with the intention of turning the depot into a community meeting place and museum that will tell the story of the Rock Island in this area and its role in creating Perry. Part of that grant was based on getting matching donations. The money raised over the last three years has gone toward moving the depot to an adjacent lot, building a new foundation, and most recently, replacing the roof. If we're successful in getting the depot listed on the National Register of Historic Places, we'll be eligible for additional grant money. But that, too, will be dependent on getting matching donations. Again, you can learn more on my website, hiblinradio.com. If you're standing on top of a mountain, look into the valley below. You'll see the river, you'll see the railroad fade towards Gulf of Mexico. From Chicago through St. Louis, travelers ride in the blinds, hear the whistle.
this program is an independent production of mine. If you have any comments or corrections, I welcome them. The best way to reach me is by email, michael at hiblinradio.com. The version of the Rock Island Line heard at the beginning of the program was performed by the legendary folk and blues singer Lead Belly. From Chicago through St. Louis. The song you're hearing now is by Jim Mize, who wrote and recorded it especially for this project. Feel the rhythm of the Rock Island Line. Thanks also to Jay Bradley Minnick for offering his advice, Kevin Kilpatrick for voicing the introduction, and most of all, thanks to the former employees of the Rock Island who have shared their stories with me over the years. I'm Michael Hiblin. Thanks for listening. This is the Rock Island in Arkansas.